Welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host, Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wiles. And today we will once again be taking a trip down memory lane with another instalment of our Listen With Sam side series. Normally I like to take a little moment at the start of the show to thank all of you and show my utter appreciation for all of you, but just as a little header for the start of this episode, I want to focus on the important things by wishing all of you the best health and good fortune out there during these troublesome times. I hope you're all well and happy, and of course there's a million and one things you could be doing in self-isolation right now, but the fact that you are choosing to listen to this particular podcast with that free time, that is overwhelming, and all I can say is thank you, and remember, wash your hands. But yeah, being as how we are all stuck inside at the moment, waiting for the apocalypse to blow over, I thought I would take advantage of the fact that we have all been sent home from work, and simply do what I would have been doing anyway, but with a microphone. And what would I have been doing? Well, listening to Paul McCartney vinyl, of course. So, after we listen to Wings' debut album Wildlife on our last instalment, it is time to press onwards with the awkward second album that is Red Rose Speedway. So yeah, if you don't know the format by now, what we're going to be doing is nothing more than relaxing with some good music whilst making conversation. Admittedly, it's a one-way conversation, but it should be fun all the same. All of the albums we cover on this side series I've already reviewed on a previous episode. I usually reference those episodes and my thoughts in them a lot. I like to compare and contrast my thoughts and opinions throughout. So if you haven't listened to those episodes already, or maybe you haven't listened to them for a while, go back and check those out as well. But yeah, Red Rose Speedway should be a fun one, because this is an album where everyone's got a wonderfully strong opinion on it. But, as usual though, before we can officially sink our teeth into the Red Rose, we must once again conduct the business of the housekeeping. Of course, if you want to get in contact with the show, drop me an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Let me know your Paul McCartney stories, whether that's some obscure Paul McCartney-based trivia, whether you've got an album or a song review of your own, maybe I've got something right or wrong that you want to bring up, or maybe even you've had some sort of contact with the man himself. Whatever that may be, you know what I'm talking about. Please drop me an email, like I say, paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. We do have one email today to read out from David Jackson, and he is replying to a a kind of open question that I put out there. I've asked a couple of people the same thing when I've interviewed them on the show as well, which is just, why do so many people seem to dislike Say, 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 despite it essentially being one of McCartney's last major hits? And uh, David writes, Sam, Say, Say, Say is disliked by many in the UK, as it is seen as an example of Paul doing almost anything to have a big hit. The song originally peaked at around number 10 in the UK charts and then started to go down over time. Top of the Pops policy back then was not to play videos from songs that were going down, so Paul's expensive video was in danger of not being seen by a wider UK audience. Paul's management tried and failed to persuade the BBC to play the video. Eventually, they agreed to play the video on Noel Edmonds' TV show, but only if Paul made a personal appearance. The song, with continual promotion on MTV, etc., did then eventually go up to number two in the UK. 
Now, it was at this point in the email where I was a little bit sceptical. I was like, oh, well, this is a really cool piece of information, but I'm not sure how many you know, laymen in the public would actually be aware of this type of thing. But then he actually goes on to explain probably the real reason why people didn't like this collaboration. He continues, But I would suggest that people's distaste for the song was due to this continual playing of an overly long video on the UK media rather than the tune itself. Possibly the UK had been put off further by the collaboration by the vomit-inducing previous work, The Girl Is Mine, which was, as writer John Blaney states, one of the most embarrassing moments in Paul's career. Keep up the great work, Sam, on your podcast. It's amongst the best on Paul, David. Wow, thank you for that insight there, David. When I said I wanted obscure trivia, I guess you you knew exactly what I meant and you delivered. I never knew that it was Paul's management doing some dodgy sly backdoor dealings that ensured that the video had that constant airplay that it had. I mean, good on them, it worked. Everyone in the UK of a certain age knows the say, say, say video. And it only goes to show how influential TV was back when you only had like four, five or six channels. Of course, David mentioned John Blaney there. Also, go back and check out my interview with John Blaney. I absolutely love that episode as well. Pressing on, you can also find us on our Twitter, which is at McCartneyPod. That's where I post all of my polls and silly questions and gifts and all things McCartney all the time. Check out the blog as well. That's another little hub for the show where I post all sorts of extra content. And with this time off during this... Uh, pandemic i've been writing a lot of content for that as well so there should be some new articles up there very soon find us on youtube simply by typing in paul mccartney pod or paul or nothing same goes for facebook and finally if you like the show if you've been listening for a while now and you really appreciate what i've been doing here if you'd like to support the show see it grow help keep the lights running then please consider becoming a new patreon patron we actually have a new Patreon patron this month. His name is Sam Hode. Thank you very much, Sam, for your support during these times. And, yeah, I can't believe anyone would actually want to donate anything to this show. So, I mean, the list of patrons is small, but it is always growing. If you've been listening to the show for a while, like I say, if you listen to many hours of content and you feel like that is worth something, maybe have a think to yourself and check out our Patreon page. And there we are, folks. Housekeeping is out of the way. Let's press on with... Red Rose Speedway. As with our last episode on wildlife, a lot of the background information behind Red Rose Speedway might be a little bit fresher in your memories, what with the big bumper release of the Early Wings era box set that came out a short while ago. But it never hurts to brush up on your general knowledge with these things. Red Rose Speedway was the second album released by Wings. Oh no, sorry. Paul McCartney and Wings, should I say. Yeah. Turns out that due to the underperforming sales of the last album, EMI wanted a little more marquee value out of the Paul McCartney brand. And for this album, they are officially titled Paul McCartney and Wings. I think they are for a couple of singles as well, but this is the only album. And with that one piece of trivia, you can pretty much sum up the entire experience and story behind Red Rose Speedway in one fell swoop, because... The final album we ended up with was one big overreaction to the public reception of wildlife. Of course, yeah, if I was the money man, I too might be a little bit sceptical. But it feels like they almost did everything in their power to ensure that Red Rose Speedway was not a success. 
This album is, of course, always in the conversation when people are talking about the Worst Wings album. And since Back to the Egg and London Town are both receiving increasing revisionism and favour in the fandom, I can only see Red Rose Speedway being stuck at the bottom of the pile, at least for now. However, that does not mean I personally hate or even dislike this record. Okay, it's clearly not the Best Wings album by a mile, and... There are certain songs that I've always had and always will have issues with, but I don't know. Maybe it's my love of a good underdog story. Maybe it's Paul's general way to worm a track into my ear over time, and this was and this was one of the very first albums I covered here on the show. But either way, I'll tell you right now, folks, that I'm not going to be coming into this review with the same kind of vitriolic fervour that I may have the first time around. I mean, objectively, the quality of the material here is worryingly open to interpretation rather than just being objectively good. But having just listened to the album a couple of times before this recording, the whole way through, and it still shocks me how much I sing along, how much my foots are tapping, and how much genuine fun I'm having. Now, surely that makes it a good album in your eyes, Sam. Well, yeah, Kinda, yeah, I suppose. But it's not a notion I can fully get behind. You know, I just don't feel it. And besides, I think you have to look at your own tastes and the average listener when coming into this album, as well as the McCartney freaks, kind of like myself. That being said, though, I still only listen to the majority of the songs on this album when I put on the vinyl or listen to the whole album as a whole. Most of these songs do not end up in playlists that I create very much in the way that most of the songs on this album don't end up in compilation albums for McCartney. So whilst I certainly appreciate the sum of its parts, this album quickly crumbles under close inspection. But the main question is, what happened to this album to get things this way? Well, after the aforementioned car crash, that was the reception and sales for Wildlife which only totaled around 1.7 million sales worldwide, which might sound like a lot for any other band, but even when you compare it to, say, like, McCartney 1 or Ram, you know, it's really not that good, with McCartney raking in 4.3 million sales worldwide and Ram 3.9, almost 4 million. So a very shocking drop-off there. So with that in mind, I guess Paul wanted to make up for lost time and then some by conceiving an even bigger, better and more professionally produced album that would act as major course correction and damage control for the band. The entire lineup from the last album would be returning, but we would also have a new bandmate in the form of lead guitarist Henry McCullough. This would be his first, last and only full studio album with Wings. And it's not like Jimmy McCulloch where, you know, he was at least partially involved with the next album. Nope. Bar a couple of singles, this is all we get of Henry and his blues. Of course, Henry is a much revered member of the band within the fandom. And had we not lost him in 2016, I would have loved to have interviewed him for this podcast. Though, the overall impression we get from this album is that Henry was yet to fully settle in. And we never got to see him unleash his full potential whilst being, you know, kind of under the influence of McCartney, shall we say? The original plan was to record and release an extensive and expansive double album. 
that would showcase the band's wider ranging and harder rocking styles, as well as also somehow potentially offering something for everyone who bought the album. Around half of these songs had been debuted and performed to great fanfare during the Wings Over Europe tour just prior, and they would include multiple Denny Lane compositions, as well as tracks written by both Linda and Henry. Yes, Red Rose Speedway was doing the whole everyone writes a song thing long before Wings at the Speed of Sound. But hey, those results are open to the, you know, you know, their own interpretation. Then the story goes that EMI, or even Paul himself, or both, had decided to trim down Red Rose from a two-disc to a single-disc release. Now again, the poor sales and reception of Wildlife rear their ugly head here, but supposedly... One or both of these parties may have suggested that some of the quality was just not up to standard, and that this culling of material and extensive uh, extra production on the album would be the best thing overall. Again, hindsight really is 2020, and what we are left with is the Wings album that most resembles a Paul McCartney solo record. Now, very much in the same way that it was a coincidence that Paul's song was selected to be recorded for the Goodnight Tonight single sessions, coincidentally, all of the songs that made it onto the single disc version of Red Rose Speedway were all songs with lead vocals by Paul McCartney, and written by Paul McCartney, uh, including several tracks that had been solo Paul McCartney compositions. Remember, this is now... Paul McCartney and Wings, and the final track listing did little for Wings' reputation for being lightweight. All of the hard rock tunes were gone, all of the instrumentals were cut, and there were no live tracks to display either. It took a few years after the breakup, but both Denny's and Henry would go on to comment about their utter disappointment of this move. And while some of this is personal, I am sure, I mean, of course, we all want our songs to make it onto the album, since we've actually heard all of the bootlegs, and the archive re-releases of all of the Red Rose Speedway material, the immediate sheer quality that you hear instantly proves all of them right. Not only did they get the shaft in terms of their compositions being included, but once again, we are seeing that Paul is one of the worst judges of his own material and, and what not to include on an album. And because of this, Red Rose Speedway is possibly one of the most discussed what-if scenarios in the Wings community, rather like a single-disc white album, but in reverse, as there is just so much material to work with, and essentially anyone can craft their own personal perfect Red Rose. And I encourage you to. I've actually covered all of these tracks that I'm just going to list on a previous Hot Hits and Cold Cuts side series episode, but just as a quick reminder, just to reinforce how much prolific material was being made during this period. I'm just going to run through all of the Red Rose Session songs that were not included on the final release, and they include Linda's Seaside Woman, Denny Lane's I Would Only Smile, as well as his lead vocal on I Lie Around. You'd have Henry's own instrumental titled Henry's Blues. Then you got this deluge of Macca tunes, including Night Out, 1882, The Mess, Soily, Best Friend, another instrumental titled Jazz Street, a cover of Tragedy, no, not the Bee Gees one. Around this time, there was also Country Dreamer, Mama's Little Girl, as well as the non-album tracks of High High High, Sea Moon, and a little-known number called Live and Let Die. Wow, that is a lot of fucking songwriting there, folks most of which would not officially see the light of day for decades. The sessions officially began on the 20th of March 73, and Glyn Johns was on board as producer, 
Johns, of course, had worked with Paul before during the Let It Be sessions, then called the Get Back sessions, and Johns was even tasked with mocking up some of the earliest versions of the album before Phil Spector came in and took over, slash ruined everything. Sadly, though, this would not be as fruitful as, say, Paul's working with Chris Thomas from the White Album sessions, as almost every story you hear about Johns and this album is concerning his premature departure. Johns only partially produced the album and left as he felt like he was wasting his time. This is another album involving Paul McCartney and a hearty weed story at its core, and Johns describes it after he left as, you know, Paul and the band just getting incredibly stoned and uselessly jamming for hours on end, even though that this is also one of their most fruitful periods as well, so maybe this is just a case of him not liking the music. And I reckon that is the case, because he is quoted as saying that Wings were just straight up not a good enough backing band for the likes of Paul McCartney. Now, besides the Paul McCartney and Wings moniker of the band at this point, Paul is rather famously quoted as wanting the band to see him just as the bass player and, more importantly, the producer Johns to have just seen him as any other bass player. And to anyone who heard our recent episode on the Press to Play sessions, you can imagine how well that went. Yes, Paul is not just any old bass player, he's the bloody leader of the band. And yeah, Johns did not last too long and Paul ended up producing the rest of the album on his own. And the sessions came to an end, finally, a whopping nine months later in the December of 1972. And the album was released on the 30th of April 73 in the US and on the 4th of May 1973 in the UK. Now, regardless of all the negativity, all of the less than stellar contemporaneous reviews and all of this behind the scenes kerfuffle, when the album came out in the spring of 73, it went straight to number one in the US and number five here in the UK. So can it really be called a failure? I mean, the following Wing 73 UK tour was fully stocked with Red Rose Speedway material, and My Love, the number one single from this album, has been played by Paul on pretty much every tour he's ever done right up to the present day. Plus, around this time you've got Live and Let Die, as well as High 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 Sea Moon. So, there were successes. Like, this isn't the nadir of McCartney's career, or even Wing's career, that everyone likes to make out. They, they were putting out material, they just weren't marketing it correctly. Like, the album that we're about to listen to today does not reflect Wing's at all. We've gone through all of their live stuff lately, like Wing's Live at Groningen and the Wing's Over Europe tour. All of that stuff is phenomenal, and sadly, we're not going to get that today. And that's the main point I want to make. Objectively, whether you like this album or not, it's just not a faithful representation of what the band could do, was doing, or where they would be going. It's Wings fake news. Right, so there is the Cliff Notes version of all of the essentials about Red Rose Speedway. And whenever I do one of these summaries, it makes me wonder how I managed to stretch my actual episodes out to a three hour length. But hey, let's not tug at that thread too much, eh? And yeah, now that we've caught with the backstory, I must say I'm pretty excited to listen to this album with you now, folks. Like... There is a part of me that genuinely likes this album. There's a part of me that thinks there's a bit of a guilty pleasure, where I feel a little bit dirty. There's a part of me that likes it in a so bad it's good way. And then there's a part of me that thinks that this is this is goddamn awful. So it's going to be a real roller coaster of emotions for me, hopefully for you as well. And despite what notes I've written, 
uh, possibly more so than ever, folks. I genuinely have no idea how I'm going to feel when the vinyl starts turning. Right, I've got my vinyl copy ready to go of Red Road Speedway here. We're pretending it's early 1973. You, we've all just picked up our latest record from, not Wings, from Paul McCartney and Wings. And we're all eagerly about to give it a spin for the very first time. And we are off, folks, kicking off the album into high gear with Big Barn Bed. And yes, I am in a good mood, folks, and most of you know why. Yes, because Big Barn Bed has a connection to the best Paul album ever, aka Ram. And this won't be the first song either. Um, many of you will probably be familiar with the little coda at the end of Ram On that you'll hear just now. Honestly, folks, I'll get onto the actual song in a second, but I just love this kind of continuity in music and films. Like, in cinema, you can overly cite previous works and influences, but in music, it's a bit of a faux pas for some reason. So to have Paul directly reference a previous album like that and create such a through line is so thrilling for me. Like, I, I just love continuity. And hearing this portion of Big Barn Bed in Ram On, it, you know, gives me that same kind of magical rush as when I heard John Lennon sing a bit of She Loves You at the end of All You Need Is Love. Anyway, on to the song itself. Yeah, always love this track, especially as a really rocking McCartney album opener. And since it was brought back from the Ram era, it makes it both a testament to Paul's ability to use every part of the buffalo, but also his talent to make songs better once he returns to them a second time around with a fresh take. I mean, the final Red Rose Speedway never gave us wings in rock mode. But that opening riff and those stomping bass drums and the jaunty acoustic and those rousing vocals all come together to make this sensational atmosphere. But still to this day, even though I full on know what's coming, this song still gets me excited for the full album ahead. I know this album is completely front loaded with the best material, but Big Bomb Bed has always stood out to me as a, one of the most enjoyable tracks on the album. Like, it gives me both rock and roll McCartney, but also heaps and heaps of silly McCartney, found in the lyricism with weeping willows and leaping armadillos. Yes, we've got the uh, overtly stoner Paul uh, genre for this one, and yeah, that's another thing I have a soft spot for. I know this song's kind of gotten a lot of flack over the years for being a bit of a nothing type of track or being a bit lightweight. Honestly though, I cannot empathise with those opinions as they're just patently wrong. Even Paul knew how good this song was. It's the opening track for the James Paul McCartney TV special. It opened up every show on the Wings 1973 UK tour. You know, everyone likes this one. Though, weirdly, uh, speaking of the 73 tour, this song was added to the set list for the Wings Over Europe quote-unquote live album that came out with the 1972-73 box set. And the only reason I bring this up is because, as far as I'm aware, and do email me in if you know anything otherwise, Big Barn Bed was not played on the Wings Over Europe tour, and it seems to be this weird mashup to try and create a product that would also link to Red Rose Speedway a little bit more. I don't know, maybe because they knew that they were never going to release a Wings the UK 73 like separate album, and they wanted to throw it on. But it always struck me as really odd that they included that on the album. Oh, and we've just got that great, fantastic piano code that comes in now. And again, we're getting pumped, we're getting excited for the album ahead, and nothing can go wrong, can it? Fuck, this is good. Ba -da -ba -ba -da -ba. Ba -ba -ba -da 
Oh, that ram through line. I'm just so weak against it. Woman. And we come on to my love. Oh, my love. Why haven't you been able to get into my good books after all these years? I mean, even Mumbo has been able to get him to like it at least a little bit more. And yet here we are in 2020, and this is still easily one of my least favourite McCartney ballads, and least favourite McCartney songs in general, really. This show is rarely without some sort of heresy, and it is with my love that we find our latest heretical declarations. Look, folks, I know this song went to number one, and I know it's a really important one to the fan base, and there's a very famous improvised guitar solo from Henry McCullough, and, you know, this song basically carried the album in terms of its sales. But it just doesn't do anything for me. I'm sorry. Like, I get why people find this emotionally stirring and resonant. And I can totally empathise with why you out there might have a personal connection with this track. But I'm sorry, I don't. And whilst I'm overly aware of my negative reviews on this show from time to time, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is here and lay this one out to dry. Like... I'm all behind Paul's angry sentiments featured in Silly Love Songs. You know, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with writing Silly Love Songs? There's nothing wrong with that. However, here, I just feel that Paul McCartney's lovey-dovey ballad formula has been taken a little too far here, and it's bordering on self-parody, and it's a little comical. I mean, I could get into the constant indulgent woe-woe-woe that, that this song's going to go into, and the repetition and the kind of non-existent vocal melody but I'm not because it's the lyricism that sticks out to me as just being so clearly subpar Paul like yeah Paul has never stated that he's the best lyricist but the reverence people have for this song you'd think that like it would have better lines than just my love does it good I mean my high school English teacher would have smacked the back of my head if I'd used such a generically bland word as good in my writing Come on, Paul. Bit more effort, mate. Ah, oh, and here it is. The solo. I think I'll just let it speak for itself. a lot of my continual loathing for this track comes from my affection and attachment to the non-existent alternate reality rocky band focused version of Red Rose Speedway and whilst I'm aware that this song was always part of the original track listing shot around for the album the fact that it's this song that stands out on this album as the most famous just leaves a bad taste in my mouth because the album itself is only you know, collected from the most middle-of-the-road, poppy, family-friendly material. And at the at the top of this pile, we have the most soppy, poppy, romantic, saccharine, cloying Paul McCartney song that I've ever heard. I know Ken Michaels thinks that I think too much about this kind of thing, but, yeah, that's really par for the course by this point. Don't you think, folks? Possibly another reason why I might dislike this track is, is just general overexposure and overplaying that all podcasters and quote-unquote critics will suffer from, because uh, the first time I came across this song was actually 
thanks to my late father's copy of Wings Greatest. But even back then, when my palette was less refined, I always saw this as being over the top, saccharine, and just trying too damn hard. Sorry, Paul. On to our third song now, and we have Get On The Right Thing, which is a song that, in terms of sequencing, the album desperately needed, because I don't know about you folks, but I needed a bit of a pickup with a bit of bollocks after my love, and this just ticks all the boxes for me. Oddly enough though, aside from my love, this was the first song that I'd heard from this album, though rather like other gateway songs that help me really get into an album, like Old Siam Sir, ballroom dancing or good times come in feel the sun unfortunately this song has too sadly suffered from much overplay this meant i was kind of bored with this track and i hadn't really listened to it until now you know coming up to do this episode and i'm glad i did really because that time off really has allowed me to appreciate this song with a new freshness Hands down, the best part of this song is this build-up that we're listening to now, though, and it's just so brilliantly executed, this slow burner. And Paul is rather gleefully squeezing every last drop of tension and blood out of this stone, and the anticipation that we're feeling here is just unbearable. And then we have this little like, light relief of the build-up. It's still slick, but we're coming up to the chorus, and you think that this is the release, and it's not... We, we, we come on to this badass chorus, it's going to kick in a second, but just hearing McCartney's Little Richard Howell here is just so amazing. Here we go. Oh, what a chorus. The mashing of the keys, the, the explorative bass line, and oh, those vocals. It, it, it's just peak McCartney. Again, part of that fact comes down to the fact that this is another one of the various leftover Ram alumni tracks featured on this album, and once you learn that, it instantly becomes very obvious that this is a song featuring the same level of raw emotion and energy that we saw on Ram. Though, unlike the other Ram tracks that were moved to this album, this song was actually pretty much completed and ready to go, and featured no overdubs or alterations by Wings whatsoever. You know, like, whilst it's kind of sad that Wings had to go and dip back into Paul's surplus material in, in the way they did, in this case, I'm really glad they did, because this is such a great song. I've also got a soft spot for Linda McCartney vocals on this show, as you know, and her falsetto, the high-pitched delivery in this song, even though it is solo, Paul, it, it, it just screams classic, perfect Wings harmonies, and it's one of my favourite moments on the album. Like... Everything Linda sings here is exactly what I want from an early 70s Paul McCartney album. I will capitulate here though that lyrically this song is pretty innocuous in the same way that Big Bomb Bed is. And I can see how some people, you know, back in 73 by this point, may have started to worry that Paul really isn't trying anymore, but is instead focusing on nonsense writing and repetition and general hippy-dippy stony philosophies. Because like we've had Big Barn Bed, My Love. Because <clears throat> we've had Big Barn Bed, My Love, and this now, and we are lacking something. I don't know. With a little more weight, I guess. 
but that's what Red Race Speedway is all about. We're meant to be having fun, and this course just is that. Another cool thing about this song is the idea that it was actually Denny and Linda who really wanted to include it on the album. I think as, as the story goes, Paul wasn't that plussed by it and was probably going to just include something from the Red Bull Speedway sessions. But Denny was just like, nah, Paul, you're really sleeping on a, a really good song here. Which makes sense, because as we all know, Paul is just the, the worst at selecting the best of his own material. I mean, imagine if he'd heard that song on Ram. Where would it have gone? Then we come on to One More Kiss, which is a song that some of you may actually be looking forward to me to covering, as it is a song that I had an awful lot to say about the first time I reviewed it. And yeah, I basically tore it a new asshole. And I totally stand by that objective, critical assessment of the song. But on a personal level, and I genuinely can't believe I'm even uttering these words, folks, but even as I'm listening to this now, you know, I haven't heard this song in years, and when it came on, I actually felt a twinge of nostalgia. Now, one of the things I've noticed about the song selection for the single disc of Red Rose Speedway is the preference for songs that do not sound like wildlife. And so the rougher material, like The Mess or Soily, was just not going to be heard. And you can tell that because the standout element and the best thing about this song is its production. Like, you only have to go back to our last listen with Sam episode to realise how far the sound and the professionalism of Wings has come between these two records. And I think McCartney really wanted to emphasise that and really wanted me to notice that. And again, this is one of the last tracks to be recorded. The band are incredibly tight together and they do deliver another incredibly memorable vocal harmony on this album. Now, that's all very well and good, but you know, let's get one thing straight here, folks. I'm not going to sit here and, you know, call this the new mumbo of the episode where I, I, I really reappraise it. I'm not going to call it a particularly good song, but it, it's a fine enough little number, isn't it? I mean, it's certainly not as bombastically offensive to my ears as I may have previously alluded to and I think that I've certainly appreciated it more in the, within the context of the double disc version of the album like if it had come out that way One More Kiss would not have been fighting for disc space in the same way and if it was on an album which had this wider range of styles and showed Wings also being really hard and rocking then having this on the album would have been more of a balancing act rather than just stuffing this naff pop album full of generic middle-of-the-road songs and whilst I do have a soft spot for this song this is clearly the start of the substandard material on Red Rose Speedway and it, you know it's not awful but it's a steep drop-off from the last three songs and you can't help but immediately think yeah this is definitely a filler album track though it's still noticeably better than When the Night and in all fairness it does still with its well-produced inoffensiveness keep the album on track till the next song even if the wobble is worryingly noticeable. And closing off side one, we come on to Little Lamb Dragonfly. And right away, just let me say that whilst I may be listening to Big Barn Bed the most out there in the real world, this is the track, without a doubt, that I consider to be the strongest single piece of material on the album. Like, it's just that good. Good thing too, because after the dip of mediocrity that we had with One More Kiss, we really needed some top-tier McCartney material to get us back on track. And we're actually going to have a lead opening vocal from Denny Lane now. Take it, Denny. I have no answer for you, little I could help you out. But I cannot help you in. Sometimes you think that life is hard. 
this is his only spot on the album. Oh well, at least I Lie Around was the B-side to Live and Let Die, I suppose. Anyway, it's just so apparent, folks, as you listen to this right now, this is, this is probably the only serious song on Red Rose Speedway. And that's probably why its emotional resonance has remained so strong within the fan base. Like, we've had, no, we've had nothing of heavyweight material so far, and now suddenly we're hit by a track that ranks amongst McCartney's very greatest. Yes, this song is that good. Objectively, I'm not going to take any other answers. This is a song that makes you stop and pay attention. And not only that, but it, it also kind of sneakily does its job in terms of tempting you onto side two. Like, if you were a little wary about the content now, uh, you know, you'll still see it out to the end, as McCartney is proving that he's still more than capable of writing effective, emotive music. Yes, everyone, Little Lamb Dragonfly is yet another song from Red Rose Speedway whose roots go back to the 71 album Ram. Yes, this is my favourite kind of episode, folks, as I just get to keep talking about Ram. Result! The song goes back all the way before they even sung of Mary and her own little lamb, and it essentially catalogues McCartney and his own experiences living on a farmstead which had live animals including lambs. And with its heart-wrenchingly emotive depictions of nature, uh, it's probably more closely linked with a song like Wildlife, as Paul's activist vegetarian leanings are all over this thing, which is just, again, so very ram. And again, like the last Ram track, I, I'm not actually sure where this song would have gone on to Ram. And it's almost like Red Rose Speedway just exists just to give us that leftover material. Almost like it's some sort of its own hot hits and cold cuts product. Lyrically, this song, it's, it's just going for a sucker punch. Like, how can your heart not melt at someone aching for a little lamb? I mean, you could see it as the most manipulative use of McCartney imagery ever, and that, you know, his use of flying and love song tropes are a little derivative for him here, but I see a true delicacy and poignancy to the words he sings here. That's just impossible to ignore. Coupled with the fact that, again, he gives us this incredibly stripped down and wrought vocal, you know, you're just able to feel the minutiae of all the tragedy here. Now, with all the backing vocals you can hear here, this uh, song is actually much different to say something like Get On The Right Thing, as this actually featured a whole bucket load of overdubs and re-recordings of vocals, and yeah, the, the results, they just speak for themselves, don't they? came back to do this episode and I listened to this song, I actually heard the phrase like No More Lonely Nights or something very similar and I wondered whether this song predicted the track No More Lonely Nights in the way that like Ramon might have predicted Big Barn Bed but 
sadly, it doesn't turn out that way. And the lyrics are, well, apparently they are, they go on the lonely nights, those lonely nights, which is close, but not quite the same thing. It's probably just a, a side effect of me thinking too much again, but because we have things like the Ramon reprise and the Be What You See link, you know, that makes me on high alert to spot things like that. This is probably the only song on the album that is very long, that isn't too long as well. You know, this is the, one of the few songs on the album that probably has the right amount of indulgent and lack of restraint. Now we come to a part of the song that I've always had fun singing along to, especially when I'm being a bit drunk, shall we say. Um, it's the la 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 part. And, you know, just like hand clapping or the hitting of suitcases or shooby doo was. What the hell ever happened to La La La's in music? You just don't ever seem to hear them anymore. Oh. But what an ending to side to side one. Now, with these Listen With Sound episodes, just as we finish side one and I change my vinyl disc over, I want you to take a quick break and just imagine what it would have been like to have heard what you've just heard in 1973. Again, there's no band on the run or anything like that, so it's just this, Wildlife, and a couple of singles is all you have to work with. How are Wings coming across as a band to you? Have they grown? Have they taken some steps forward or maybe even a few back? How have they changed? Of course, let me know your thoughts on Red Rose Speedway by dropping me a quick email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Especially, I'd love to hear some reviews from people who were around in 1973 when it came out. How did people actually feel about this album? Me, personally, I'm quite liking this so far. I'm having a lot of fun, folks, listening to Red Rose Speedway. And now, let's get on with side two. And the first track to open this second side is Single Pigeon, an endearingly brief and subtle doodle of a song that exists solely to remind you why you liked Paul McCartney in the first place, especially if you had any worries with the first side. A short, sweet and instantly likeable ditty, Single Pigeon displays Macca's effortless mastery of the craft. For just under two minutes it's you, him and the piano. What more could you want than that? But yeah, this is supposed to be a Wings album where Paul is the bassist, yada yada yada, but here he just seems to casually tap into his innate knack for writing memorable melodies and tragically personal lyrics, even if it's for an all too fleeting moment. Like, I know this is one of the albums where it's just front loaded on side A and that's where all the, all the best material is, but you know, despite the fact that I mostly listen to Big Barn Bed and how Little Lamb Dragonfly is the best song, despite all of that, this is probably the track that I will always call my personal favourite. Again, with all these Listen With Sam episodes, they're going to be quite nostalgic for me and end up being a little bit more personal than usual. And for those of you who remember where and who I was back when I started this show, you might remember that this particular song will always remind me of someone who used to be in my life but no longer is. They loved this song, they love pigeons, and so that is etched into my mind forever, as it were. But I am confident that I would still be completely powerless and gooey towards this song, whether I had that prior connection or not. 
I love Single Pigeon. I always catch myself singing this one. Sunday morning, Sunday morning fight about Saturday night. And next up we have When the Night, which as some of you may again remember was the other song along with One More Kiss that I just eviscerated the first time I covered this album. And for good reason, because even as I listen to this song now, it does very little to make me think that it's anything other than filler. Yes, this song probably has its fans, but come on, you've got to admit to yourself that this sure is the herald of all of the lesser material to come on this album. This is such a skippable song if there ever was one, and I cannot recall any time that I've listened to this song on its own since I originally reviewed the album many years ago. Now, I can soundly report that I don't quite detest it as much as I did before, but it's only an incremental improvement when compared to like When the Night. Like out of these two, it's still by far the weaker number, and it boggles my mind how it managed to work its way onto this album. Like when Paul was building this supposed work, which would have something for everyone, and that would be a popular music record, he seemingly confused that notion with simply selecting the naffest songs instead. Though, if you're this far into this podcast and you think Paul is the best person for choosing that material, then you really haven't been paying attention, have you? Uh, just like One More Kiss, whether you like it or not, though, this is one of the most finely crafted productions on the album. Again, though, it's almost cynically crisp, as I can't help but feel that its inclusion was, again, mostly an overreaction to the content on Wildlife. Again, another later session song, layers of polish, are absolutely everywhere on this, and, and you know, whilst it is slick, do you not feel like it's a, um, a little overwhelming in parts? Like, it really is a shame that Paul thought that this was the right sound for the album. Because it's, it's just so, so hard to justify the material that was cut. Like, you know, you'll hear me say this over and over, but when this song could have easily just been some throwaway B-side, and you could have had something like I Lie Around, or Country Dreamer, or Mama's Little Girl instead of this slow plodder. It, it just feels insulting. Like, come on. Come on, Paul. You can't really have thought that this was better than some of the other B-sides and leftover tracks. You couldn't have. I've also recently actually discovered a rare live version of this song from Wings performing in Newcastle on their 73 UK tour. And just like all the obscure like wildlife tracks on the Wings Over Europe tour, the crowd actually do cheer when Paul announces this one. Um, and that performance is actually a little rockier than this one. Uh, but it's a little too rough around the edges. And like it, you know, again, the band are doing it live and changing it slightly, but it did become clear to me during that listen through that the majesty of this song is is in just how finely tuned this whole studio production is rather than any actual musicality. It's almost like a writing project just to prove that they could do it. And that is what they're doing. They, they are proving that they can be this finely crafted 70s pop band. And, and they do prove it, but they don't do it by giving us the best music possible. And yeah, that was when the night never really liked it. Still don't like it really.
Next up, and technically the penultimate track of the album, we have Lou or Loop, the first Indian on the moon. The catch-all easy way that everyone likes to talk about this song is that this is Paul trying to experiment with whether Wings can capitalise on the whole progressive rock scene. And considering that Wings would go on to do multiple reggae songs, several folk songs, several disco songs, um, you know, whilst Lou remains the only prog tune that they ever did, it, it does go to show how unsuccessful of an experiment it ultimately was. I've never really been interested in prog rock as a genre in general anyway, so maybe I'm not the best person to judge this track, but Lou does nothing to pick up the album in the way that it should after a lame duck like When the Night. For an album that, again, is fighting violently for space on a side with an 11 minute medley, uh, you know, we, we have other absolute bangers just cut out and left on the cutting room floor like Night Out or 1882, The Mess, Soily. And, you know, instead we have four and a third minutes of Lou and his lunar mission, you know, just wasting the vinyl. I mean, if we're going to talk about swapping this song out for another, then why don't we pop on Jazz Street instead? It's a similar length and it's such a much more competent instrumental in every fucking way. Back when I first spoke about this song, I think I was probably hearing a little more than what actually was there, because coming back to it here, I find myself growing weary of this track already. When I'm at the halfway point, like, if you had to pick a song that most exemplifies the stone attitude of the band at this point and its lack of direction, then it really would have to be this one. Because after quite an interesting spark of an idea, and a few cool concepts strewn throughout, like all these little sci-fi noises and stuff, the majority just ends up being quite shockingly meandering. Like, from especially this point around here, it really starts to remind me of things like Krina Craw in all the wrong ways. You know, it's very stop and start, it's a lot less clever than it thinks it is, and it's wasting my time. I remember releasing the original episode we did on Red Rose Speedway, and it actually might have been the most stressful podcast I've ever put out at that point. And it wasn't because, like, you know, the material on this album is particularly challenging or anything, but purely because of my own stupidity. And, like, I'm not sure how I quite did this, but I managed to edit the majority of the audio for the original Red Rose Speedway podcast. And then, poof, I lost all the data and progress in an instant. So, as you do as a podcaster, you pull yourself together and edit it again. Now, I, again, I spend far too long editing this show, and it really is grueling to have to do it all over again, but I did do it. And about halfway through again, I somehow lost all the data again. Now, I still had the original files, of course, but I was so frustrated and so annoyed by all of this. And I, I just couldn't bear to face that audio again. So, and I've never revealed this on the show, folks, but I actually outsourced that work to a site called Fiverr for someone else to edit for me. And yeah, that, that is the only episode of this show that isn't edited by me. It has a mystery co-producer. Go back and see if you can tell the difference. On a lighter note though, the original Red Rose Speedway episode was probably one of the most poignant in the show's history. Because originally I was meant to have a guest on, Morris Bozitsky, who you may remember from our London Town episode. I really love that one. But what happened was, he ended up uh, having something else to do or a family thing and he had to come back for the London Town episode, as you know. But in preparation for talking to Morris, I've done all this research and you know I've really expanded the background segment of the album. 
And since I was then without a co-host, I had to then deliver all of this super detailed information. And that is essentially what turned the show into what it is today. Because, you know, I do like to think that it is that detailed. But now, when I look back at my notes for McCartney 1, Ram, and Wildlife, I, I cannot help but cringe. I mean, you know, half the reason I have so much editing. And finally, we're going to round out the album with the second of Paul's major medleys, this first song being Hold Me Tight. It still blows my mind, folks, that Paul would actually have the gall or the lack of stone of forethought to actually write another song called Hold Me Tight after he did so on With The Beatles back in 63. But yeah, he did. And the song we get here is surprisingly fun and probably a lot better than it deserves to be. It's probably gonna be reviewed a lot better than it deserves to be as well. Hold Me Tight, yeah, this is the opening song of the medley and I kind of want to be critical right now, but I know that if I wasn't talking to you guys right now, I would just be singing along to this incredibly silly song. <laughs> Actually, whilst I was listening to this song for the episode, I was immediately flooded with memories of my charity door-to-door -door fundraising days, as it was around that time that I was rubbing the album the first time around. And I can distinctly remember being stuck in the back of a shitty car on the motorway to some bumfuck middle of nowhere area to do some door-to-door -door knocking. I was bored as shit, I didn't want to do the job, and I was having to listen to some bollocks motivational team speech, and I can remember slipping my left earphone in just to listen to this song, and the relief from the drudge of reality was instantaneous. So I'm probably always going to have quite a positive association with this song. Always liked this solo as well. Of course, the main elephant in the room right now is the Abbey Road medley comparison. You know, obviously this is not a patch on that medley. You know, obviously it's one of the greatest albums of all time. The main problem with this medley, and of all future medleys though, is that they are 100% poor. And on Abbey Road we get a whole host of John songs to break it up. And whilst George and Ringo may not have written any tracks for the Abbey Road medley, their involvement, vocals and instrumentation are key to its construction. Moving on to part two of the medley, I'm gonna slow things down rather appropriately with Lazy Dynamite. And I'm gonna play it safe and assume that I have already called this song Lazy in my first review the first time around because that joke is so fucking obvious, but this song is so fucking lazy. And to repeat its laziness once more can't really hurt, even if it is a little bit lazy on my part. Won't you come out tonight when the time is right? Or will you find that feeling in your heart? It is strange how this whole medley sounds and feels like it was rushed at the last minute to fit onto a newly constructed single disc Red Rose Speedway and I think I may have even said it was that way the first time around but the fact that you know you can go back and see for yourself that this four-part medley was on the original acetates for the double album means that its inclusion here is not as disingenuous as you may have first thought 
clearly Maka felt it was appropriate to pull out the big guns and recapture some of that Abbey Road magic during this kind of little slump for Wings. Though this song is the poster child for the theory that Paul essentially cooked this whole medley up on the back of a napkin because it's, it's not up to the sound of the album or even the rest of the medley or the rest of Paul's work. Once it's gone through its first verse and chorus, it, it does swiftly run out of steam and doesn't really have much further to offer. I do find myself skipping this song entirely just so I can get to Hands of Love and Power Cut all the quicker, which I don't feel too bad saying. <laughs> like, this song is the oxymoronic pun of dynamite. You know, it's, it's just unimaginative. It's that typical Red Rose Speedway written in his sleep lyricism. And, you know, coupled with the song's over-reliance on this, this fascination with repetition that Paul has in this period, I can't help but call this the Sun King of the Red Rose Medley. And yes, folks, I really don't like Sun King on Abbey Road. Like, yeah, this is the nadir of the medley, but it does admittedly have some kind of goofy appeal. Like, I do have to have an almost out-of-body experience to do this, but I can enjoy it on certain days. But you do have to be, you know, very conscious of how derivative it is and how obviously sloppy McCartney is being. Like I said, there are parts of this album that are so bad it's good. On to the true penultimate track now, and part three of the medley, we have Hands of Love aka the acoustic, silly, light-hearted part of the medley where you're going to swiftly forget that you, you had those two earlier parts and you're just going to really start getting into, into, into the groove. Like, this is one of the most sing-alongable, enjoyable parts of the album. This part reminds me of stuff that we're going to get on Band on the Run, like Mrs. Vanderbilt, that have that campfire, inclusive nature to them. Also, when compared to all the other songs in the medley, this is the song that sounds most like the band performing, and it's not just the Paul McCartney show, which I must admit, I also really enjoy these fake faux trumpet sounds that the band do these little impersonations of. It's almost like this is what they would have done in an early take to like map out an actual solo, but they decided to leave it in instead, and it just adds to that playful and fun atmosphere that we experience in the medley right now. Again, listening to this album all the way through with you now, the lack of any poignant lyrics or even just generally well-written quality Paul McCartney lyricism is truly shocking now. Like, the dearth of something with a little more subtlety or nuance is sorely lacking from this album. And we are getting to the point here where, where, whereby the amount of lightweight fun that we are being offered, which admittedly is very fun and enjoyable, is just starting to wear a little thin. Like, we're being offered all of these entrees and hors d'oeuvres and starters, but aside from Little Lamb Dragonfly, I'm, I'm lacking a main course to tuck into. Yes. And no, folks, I'm not saying I'm not enjoying myself. This is a part of the melody that I really do love and I sing along to, but this is just the point where I am realising that once this album's over, I'm really not going to be left that fulfilled, am I? Mm, I really don't think so, no. And now, to cap us off, we have Power Cut. 
aka the song which is both mine and author Luca Perazzi's favourite song in the Red Rose Medley. This is another one of those songs that I'm really tempted just not to talk over because I love it so fucking much. Like Picasso's last words, drink to me. This song was inspired by a real life event when Paul and the band really did go through a power cut. And I can't believe that such an innocuous, you know, mild little event in Paul's life could turn out a song that shockingly, like, seems to have so much creativity behind it. Like, come on, the lion's share of songwriting is plunged straight into power cut for the medley. Like, this towers above all of the other material in this medley, and maybe because it has the ability to weave all of them together to make it feel more naturally like a medley at the end is what gives this song that edge. But just... to let that solo play there folks it's just too pure and perfect but yeah the main melody of this song along with the vocal melody to me is just some of the catchiest most memorable material Paul has ever put out there let alone this album but yeah this song is so unjustly rated highly in my in my uh, perspective like yeah you, you know of course I know that this is lightweight as hell like the rest of, of the medley but again, like Single Pigeon, Paul is able to tap into that natural songwriting talent that he always displays at least once an album. And it's just so strange that we get to see it here during this part of the medley. I mean, there's a reason why this is both mine and Luca's favorite part of the medley as well. all the bits of the medley brought back together it's starting to sound very Abbey Road right now and even if the concept didn't quite work it sounds like it does here at least at first glance and and now folks we are coming to the end of Red Rose Speedway I'm not sure if even at this point in 1973 people would be all that hopeful for the future of Wings, but as we all know, the, the the depths of this album almost exist solely to make the heights of Band on the Run stand out all the greater. And there we are folks, that indeed was Red Rose Speedway, whether you like it or not. And in all honesty, folks, despite a few negative comments here and there, I really have enjoyed listening to this album with you. It's an incredibly nostalgic 
experience for me. It really takes me back to a very specific point in my life. And no matter how uneven and disjointed and unrealised this album is, I can't help but still like it. Paul knows how to get me over time, and this is definitely an album of growers rather than showers. Thank you very much once again for joining me for another episode of Listen With Sam. This is one of my favourite little side series, and judging by the downloads, it seems to be one of your favourites as well. Please check out all the other previous episodes and stick around for next time when we're obviously going to be digging into some more primo material, a.k.a. Band on the Run. If you've got any thoughts about Red Rose Speedway or the upcoming band on the run, again, please send me an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Check out the blog, check us out on Facebook and YouTube. And finally, if you've enjoyed today's episode, if you've been enjoying the content I've been making, then please consider supporting me on Patreon. Sorry this episode took a little bit of a while to come out, folks. These times have been a bit uneven for all of us, to say the least. And I've been dealing with a few things with family and stuff. So, yeah, apologies for that. But... I've got some really fun things planned during this quarantine break. I'm going to be collaborating with a few of my favourites on this podcast. And I can't wait to get all of that out to you. But yeah, I'm sure Denny Lane has already been playing us out for some while. Let's keep this nice and short, folks. Peace and love. Peace and love. Harry Krishna, thank you all for listening. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Wash your hands. Play us out, Denny. <laughs>